In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. Welcome back to another week in the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And we, especially in our modern world of today, need to keep one eye on death. If you've ever heard of the saying, memento mori, that is the, the hour or the moment of death, we need to keep an eye on death because we are in life and death. And that's why I'm pleasingly announcing this week the launch of a new book by my good friend over many years, the Reverend Father John Flader. Welcome aboard to the Catholic Toolbox. Hello, George, and uh, pleased to be with you again. Thank you very much. We haven't had you here on the, for a while <laughs> on the, the Catholic Toolbox. And look, I'm, I was very excited when you first told me about the, the whole project that you were working on, especially during COVID, the whole lockdown. You know, speaking about it, I remember before we got married, actually, you came over here for dinner and then we were speaking about this whole project of helping those who are nearing death, near-death experiences and those who've lost loved ones or are losing loved ones to, to, to reflect on death. So tell us a bit about the book. Firstly, what is the, the title of the book? And, and, and let's go through it and understand uh, the whole contents of the book. Okay, the title and the book is about to be launched and uh, published. It should be out either next week or perhaps the week after. And the title now, it's gone through several stages of titles until a friend suggested the title, Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death. Dying to Live is catchy. And um, so that's what people are doing. They're dying not to die and end their existence. They're dying to live, to live forever with God. And as I say repeatedly in the book, what happens after we die does not depend on what we think is going to happen. There's lots of people that say, oh, I don't believe in life after death. When we die, it's the end, it's finished. And, and it's not, it depends on reality, on what God has determined in the way he has made us. In fact, <clears throat> in the book, there's a great story from an, about a New Zealander who at the age of 24 was traveling the world, he found himself in Mauritius and he was diving at night for seafood with the, the people from that town in the village. And they went in about 11 o'clock at night. He dives into the water with his wetsuit with short sleeves. Soon as he hits the water for the first time, he has this tremendous stinging on his arm. And he said, what is that? And then he has his torch and he looks around and he sees the box jellyfish. This is the one that will kill you in 10 to 15 minutes. Its tentacles are two meters long and they're covered with barbs and they scratch his arm. And he got out of the water as soon as he could, by which time he'd been stung five times. And then he could feel the toxins moving up his legs. He was becoming paralyzed and he was dying and he knew it. And then he said, as an atheist, because at that stage, he didn't believe in God. As an atheist, I don't believe in life after death. Cessation, it's finished, it's all over. But as a gambler, I'm gambling with my life here. It's like Russian roulette. What if I'm wrong? So he went through that reasoning process, which is customarily called Pascal's wager, because Blaise Pascal, 
in the 17th century wrote about that in his pensée, in his thoughts, his wager about whether you bet that there is life after death or there isn't, or in his case, it was more you bet that there is a God or there isn't. So this man who didn't believe in life after death and didn't believe in God is now facing death and suddenly his whole thought process changes. This is my life. I'd better get this right. So that story is in the book. The book is filled with stories. The origin of the book is interesting, George. It's not my idea. And that's the first line in the introduction. This book was not my idea. Well, whose idea was it? I was giving a retreat about a year ago. And a friend who was on the retreat said, wouldn't it be good if there were a book on life after death for people, especially who don't know whether there is life after death or not. And as soon as he said that, I immediately became enthused because I thought this book is needed. I don't know of a book like it, especially written from the Christian point of view. And thirdly, I have already written half that book in my columns in the Catholic Weekly. I've had extensive columns on life after death issues, including Pascal's wager, whether we have a soul, whether there's a God and so on, and all on, on the death, the judgment, hell, purgatory and heaven. I had to revise a lot of that material and then write a lot of new material. But you mentioned COVID and the COVID lockdown in Sydney presented lots of time to write the book because I couldn't go to the school where I'm a chaplain for several months. During that time, I was at home and I could spend that time writing the book. So the book got sped up in its, in its writing by the COVID. So we thank COVID for allowing me to get this book out a little bit earlier. So from the suggestion of the book to its finish, has been about 12 months. In this one, I'm extremely busy <laughs> with other things. So thanks to COVID, we, we had enough time to write it. Those who have read it, and I start with myself, the, the man who wrote the foreword, who's a professor of mathematics at the University of New South Wales, James Franklin, he's written about eight books, including one on philosophy. He's a real expert in this area. He writes a very nice foreword for the book. But others who have read the manuscript all think this book is going to sell. This book is going to help a lot of people. And ever since I started writing it, I've been asking people to pray that I can finish the book and that the book will help many. And now that it's finished, uh, the many people that I speak with who say I want 20, one of them said I want 20 copies. Another one said I want 10. So I think... Um, it will sell. And it's not a matter of selling and making money. It's a matter of selling and helping people. And it will help those who don't know what happens if they read the book. Often it will be given to them as a gift by a friend who bought, buys it and who does believe in life after death and says, here, read this. And it's fairly short. It's easy to read with lots of stories. So it will help those who don't believe in life after death to know that there is indeed something after we die. And that it will help those who perhaps belong to some religion, which could be anything, it could be Islam, it can be Judaism, it can be Hinduism, or Buddhism or whatever. They haven't been practicing, they're a bit lax, and now they might be facing death either because of old age or sickness, or they're facing the death of loved ones as so many people have around the world with COVID, and they want to know the answer, what happened to my uncle, what happened to my grandmother, to my spouse. And then for people who do know what happens after we die, it will help them very much with the arguments to show others why indeed there's life after death. I mean, what's absolutely remarkable is, is the timing. I mean, we're in a time of pandemic, many people, have at least once pondered death. You know, could COVID kill me? Uh, could, could I die from this disease? I mean, just the time is absolutely perfect. And I love how you couldn't service, uh, you know, the school as a chaplain during that time. But 
when a lot of people in our society today who think about, you know, doing, uh, taking a break or a holiday or many, you know, many clergy, you know, use perhaps could use it as an opportunity to go on holidays, you know, as, as went around during COVID. You as a cleric took this time up to, to really put this book together. And I know COVID such a blessing to really divert more time and energy into there, but I really see that this will help a lot of people because this is the fundamental, I think this is the fundamental start to most people, wherever they are at, whether they're religious, atheist, spiritual, this is a fundamental book that will get every human being on the face of the earth over the age of reason and has the, the intellectual faculties to uh, start asking the bigger questions because the reality is we're here but, and we're all going to die. And you're approaching it from the back door of death. And so I think everybody can pick this up over the age of re- and really start to, to, to ask the bigger questions that what is going to happen after we die? I mean, this is a serious question. I, I don't know how people live their life and wake up farther, <laughs> not asking these questions on a daily level or thinking that or keeping a watch on that. I mean, it's, yeah. so Let's now go into sort of the structure of the book. Take us through a bit of a journey. I know many people want to get a copy of this. Uh, I think I've already had inquiries of people wanting to get a copy leading up to this episode. Take us through a bit about the structure of this book yeah. uh, so, so our listeners understand what to expect when they pick it up and buy it. Okay, it begins with my introduction to the book, which gives the scope of the book, the things that I've been talking about now and and uh, but the the general line of, of of investigation and and thought is we start from from reason. So a person has picked this book up. It's a an, a topic that is of interest to absolutely every single human being, as you just said. And and we're all going to die. And many people put off that question. I'm not interested in that. I don't believe in life after death. I'm not going to die anyway. But what we saw with that New Zealander, and there's another story of an of a, a Canadian airplane pilot. He's a commercial airplane pilot. He made a lot of money. He had grown up in a Christian family, but now he hadn't practiced anything. And now he's um, he's going out to visit a property that he's about to sell in his ute, and he has been, he suffered from Guillain-Barre syndrome, which can leave you either dead in many cases or with severe pain. And he had severe pain for many years afterwards. And he found a medication that he imported from England and he was taking too much of it. He knew that, but the more he took, the more the pain was diminished and the longer the relief from the pain lasted. So he's now out on this property. He feels the pain. He reaches in the glove box of his ute and takes yet another pill, knowing that he probably shouldn't. And then he begins to pass out. And in this stage, when he's passing out and he's thinking, I could be dying, he too, like the New Zealander, begins to think, my goodness, I haven't thought of God for a long time. And he said, and I said something that I hadn't said for a long, long time, God help me. And also he begged God to forgive his sins. God forgive me. And that was what saved him from going to hell. Then he he passed out, he had a near death experience in which his soul was outside of the truck looking back on it. And his first thought was, there's somebody in my truck. And this person had, fallen against the steering wheel and he realized that's me. There was blood coming out of his nostrils and perhaps his ears, I can't remember. So he was effectively dead. He had a near-death experience. He, he saw hell, he saw heaven. And when people get close to death, suddenly their thought process changes. So this book will alert many people to that reality and it will convince them, I hope, don't wait until you are in the moment of death. Read this book now and reflect on it and get prepared. You've got time to prepare. So the first chapter is called Nearing the End. So it just puts the reader in, well, it puts me as I write the book 
in the mindset of somebody who is nearing the end, either because of advanced age, which I am too, by the way, or because they've got a sickness or because someone near them has died or is dying. And, and just gets them to reflect on their life, how, the hap how happy it was when they were little, what's happened ever since, not necessarily bad things, but good things too. But lead them along to consider the uniqueness of their life. And now they might be getting close to death and one day they will die and what is going to happen. So we've interested them in the book. <clears throat> The first chapter after that is Pascal's Wager, and it's entitled Placing a Bet. So it introduces the reader to this thought process of thinking that either there is a God and life after death or there isn't, and which would be the safer bet. And I won't go through it now, but Pascal convinces anyone that it is much safer to bet that there is a God and life after death than to bet that there isn't. Because if you bet that there isn't, and there is, <laughs> you've lost everything. So Pascal's wager is the first <clears throat> chapter. The next chapter is called The Soul. And it shows the reader that we have a spiritual soul. All living things have a soul. The definition of a soul is the life principle of, of, a, of a being, that, of the principle of life and unity of a living being. It could be a plant, it could be an animal. All have a, a life principle, but humans have a life principle which is in, in addition a, a spiritual soul with an intellective reason. We can think, we can plan, we can make progress. So we have a soul, and that soul being spiritual cannot be destroyed. It doesn't die. The body dies. In fact, death is the separation of the soul from the body. The body will be buried or cremated or lost, whatever. But what happens to the soul? Being spiritual, it cannot be destroyed. So that's a, a, an important chapter in the book. Then another chapter is something that I reflected on many times and, and read, of course, too longing for what is beyond. We long for complete happiness. We find relative happiness here, great happiness, but somehow it never satisfies. The richest people have all the money they want. They probably bought all the cars, all the possessions, but they're still not completely happy. There's something in us that cries out for something more. And the will cries out for, for the good and happiness. The intellect cries out for truth. And those ultimate answers to the ultimate questions, not just, is it going to rain tomorrow or is my football team going to win? But where did this will come from? Is there life after death? Is there a God? Is there any meaning to life? Or are we just a cork bobbing on the waves of the ocean, destined one day to get filled with water and sink and be seen no more. Does life have meaning? These are the ultimate questions. So that longing for beyond looks at this uh, um, way of thought and answers the question that if we have built in, all of us, a desire for something more, for ultimate answers, it must be because there is indeed an answer to that. And that's why, of course, St. Augustine writes at the beginning of his confessions, Lord, you made us for you, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. And then we go to the question, is there a God? Because if there's life after death, it's not just a soul blowing around in the wind like a feather. There is a God. But is there a God? I don't believe in God. So all the arguments that we give, are arguments from modern scientific findings, from where did the universe come from? How long has it been here? How did it begin? This is a fundamental and very, very interesting question. And I quote at some length, Stephen Hawking, who when he wrote his first book, the popular book at least, A Brief History of Time, he believes in God clearly at the end of the book. If we understood that, he says, we would understand the mind of God. Then he wrote a second book, The Grand Design, 
in which he clearly does not believe in God and the universe put itself together out of nothing by itself. So I, I deal with that. And he was in an interview close about a year or so before he died, <clears throat> he expressed the view that he doesn't believe in life after death. We don't live on except in the genes that we may give to our offspring or in their memories. So I quote him and then I answer that and scientists answer him too. So all the arguments for God based on modern science, including, consider this one, how did life begin? At the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago, there was no life. About three and a half billion years ago, or about a quarter of the, of the time frame ago of the 14 billion roughly, billion years, life began. How did it begin? And I've quoted the two scientists, Sir um, Frederick Hoyle and Chandra Wickramasinghe. They, they pondered the question in the early 80s. How did life begin? And did it just put itself together, this huge macromolecules of proteins and amino acids, all in the right configuration? How did that happen? If something was just floating around in the prehistoric soup, as they call the atmosphere, could all of these molecules put themselves together by chance in the right configuration? They came up with, it, with an infinitesimal tiny probability, which dwarfs the probability that scientists use of anything that's less than one in 10 to the 80th doesn't exist. And they came up with one in 10 to the 40,000. There's a bit and of what, science. And what you're dealing with there, Father, is on a scientific level is the existence of matter itself. That's after matter has existed, that these yeah. molecules, the, the statistical probability of those molecules coming together. But if we actually go to the first principles uh, of the Big Bang theory and the whole concept of gravitational singularity and that the whole universe was condensed into uh, a, a dense, uh, a dense collection of matter. I mean, by the way, which doesn't often many times uh, in the secular writings don't often credit Father Georges Lemaitre, a Catholic, exactly. Bulgarian Catholic engineer sure. and no, astrophysicist, no, 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 Belgian, Belgian, Belgian uh, astrophysicist and engineer uh, who lectured uh, at a university in Belgium and collaborated with Einstein on several. Well, Einstein at the beginning, Einstein rejected him, and then the end, Einstein realized he was right. So yeah, he he is the one that came up with the idea. Of he the said, "Your Einstein, I believe, said to him, uh, your mathematics is correct, but your physics is wrong.'" <laughs> in the end, the end, he had to agree. No, I, I deal with Einstein. I deal with I don't mention Lemaitre, but I do talk about the Big Bang. But from there to life, something that's so complex that it's actually alive and we can reproduce that is a huge quantum leap we look to at the at the the nature of a cell and here i quote another book by a, a, a scientist who was working at the university of new south wales when he wrote his book it's michael denton um, um on evolution something i can't remember the title now i'm just off the cuff but but he talks about the, um, the sophistication of a cell. It's just a, a micro factory that can reproduce itself in a matter of hours. And, and how could this come about? And then many of these proofs that I use for the existence of God or arguments, let's call them that, have convinced atheists. There's at least three atheists that have become believers in God through looking at, at the universe. So that's the chapter on is there a God? And then from there, we've convinced, hopefully, oh, of course there's a God. But then, but how can this pure spirit create matter? So we look at that question from a philosophical point of view, that is simple philosophy. And what is this God like? So we look at all the characteristics of God as that we can know from reason alone. And with many of them, we simply are left with our mouth open wondering, but how can that be? Because it's a mystery how, a, how God can be pure spirit without matter, how he can be intelligent as he is, how can be all powerful as he is to create all that matter out of nothing and so on. So the chapter, what is God like comes after that. Then the, the, one of the pivotal chapters 
for the development of, of our argument is the one on near-death experiences. I didn't know much about near-death experiences when I started writing this. I researched it. And what is a near-death experience? It is the experience that someone has when they are clinically dead, generally with a cardiac arrest. And generally this has happened in a hospital setting. Because if it happens like with that Canadian in his truck out in the bush, somehow they found him and then he revived, but he was, he was out for, for many hours, but somehow he was managed to be saved because God wanted to save him. Somebody found him and got him to a hospital. But it happens generally in a hospital setting so that they can pump on your chest, give you adrenaline and give you electroshock to get your heart started again. And during that time, some people, not all of course, a few experience the separation of the soul from the body. That's the first experience. And the soul often hovers above the body in that operating theater where the person is watching what is happening. One of the stories that I tell is of, it was a woman who had the cardiac arrest. Her soul hovered above the body, saw what the doctors were doing, saw, I think it's the one where he, she saw a doctor put something under some books or under some papers. When she revived, the doctor was looking for what he had misplaced. And she said, you put it over there <laughs> under those papers. And, and he said, no, you, you couldn't have seen that because you were unconscious. She said, no, I saw it. That's where you put it. He looked and that's where it was. Well, that in itself is extraordinary. But what is even more extraordinary is that woman was blind. She could not see wow. in life. Her soul could see. And then the next stages, if you put the thousands and thousands of documented near-death experiences together, the common elements are, first, separation of the soul. Second, passing through a tunnel. Well, some go to hell, and they don't generally pass through the tunnel to the light, although they may pass through the tunnel to the darkness of hell and some experience that a number of the ones I talk about did experience that then they often go to the light and to that state of absolute bliss of unalloyed happiness that they've never experienced some see a divine being some talk with a divine being and invariably once there they don't want to go back even though they may be young they may have um, a, a future to look forward to. They do not want to go back. And this New Zealander at, at 24, when he got to heaven, having lived a very, very pagan life, which he is, is ready to admit in his testimony. And this is from YouTube. I put the link in the book. He gets to heaven and he just does not want to go back. But then on his way to the hospital in an ambulance, amongst the things he saw that God gave him to see to help him to convert and be sorry for his sins was he saw an image somehow of his mother in New Zealand praying for him. And when he got to heaven, he was asked, don't tell me the, the fire alarm is going off in our house or is that in your house? It's probably I'm mine. <laughs> anyway we have false alarms here every now and then and or maybe it's just a test that's gone off and he thought of his mother and he said to himself if i stay here which means i have died and i'm now in heaven and i stay in heaven my mother will spend the rest of her life worrying that her son died and went to hell and that was the argument that moved him to think, I've got to go back. He went back to New Zealand. And when he spoke to his mother about what had happened on that particular day, that was the very moment when she, by divine inspiration, obviously, was praying for him, thinking he was dying. So he had a total conversion. He spends his life now speaking about, about God, and he's to totally converted. So near-death experience is a pivotal chapter, and we have a number of individual stories as related either in writing or 
or on YouTube. And, and Father, we will go into some of those, but first we need to take our break, a short break here. Um, so for those, who, for those who want to call in here with your questions or comments here for Father, the number is 96256111. That is 9625. Say, say that a bit slower. <laughs> um, <laughs> 96256111. That is 96256111. Or you can email us at thecatholictoolboxshow.gmail.com. Uh, uh, that is thecatholictoolboxshow.gmail.com. Or you can comment in any of the Facebook live streams here. So stay tuned here. We'll be back shortly. My name is Father Damon Seifer. I'm a member of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, which is the Latin Mass Order. Our order has been ministering to the faithful in Western Sydney uh, for about 20 years now. But we think it's time for us to find our own place, to be able to build our own church. So we're really encouraging people to make donations, perhaps even dedicated to monthly donations so that we can forge to take on perhaps a mortgage for this great endeavor. So we would like to, in the long term, build a traditional church for the celebration of the traditional liturgy in the Latin Rite. We would encourage you to think about this, to pray about this, and see if God is calling you to uh, commit to helping us with this great endeavor to build a new church for Western Sydney. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the art of practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manassa, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today. And we're continuing our discussion about near-death experiences in the new book launch of Father John Slater, my good friend, and we're going through some amazing stories here, but if you have any questions or comments, you can call here on 96256111. That is 96256111. Or you can email us at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. That is thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. Or comment in any of the Facebook live streams. I'll be sure to answer your questions or on the YouTube live as well. So we're continuing here we, uh, about near-death experiences, uh, Father. And it's just remarkable. I mean, the fact that, that God's given uh, the opportunity for some people to experience that and then share that with people. You know, unlike, uh, unlike uh, uh, the rich man and Lazarus, you know, where he couldn't return back to tell everybody else about it. I think God has allowed providentially these experiences to happen. And what's phenomenal is, is the whole story of the, the woman who helped the surgeon find his <laughs> equipment. When, uh, when she was unconscious. And, and uh, let's continue through the book. I know, uh, uh, where, where are we up to in the book in our discussion? Okay, we're about halfway through. I'll do this quickly Only so we can talk yes. about other things. Um, after this, I, I look at a number of cases. The title of that chapter is Back from the Dead. And so people will say, oh, nobody's ever come back from the dead to tell us about it. The near-death experiences are probably that. They've gone beyond death and, and come back to tell us about it. Somebody would doubt that, I suppose. But back from the dead is people who have, in fact, died and come back. Now, one of them is Jesus, of course. So I mentioned him. I mentioned a few apparitions of Our Lady, and amongst them Fatima, where this woman, if you want to call her a woman, who appeared to three little children in 1917, told them a number of predictions in the July apparition of things that were going to happen, one of which would happen in October, a big miracle that would be seen by everybody, the miracle of the sun. She told them then that there would be another war which would be preceded by a great light. And in 1938, there was an aurora borealis, which is extraordinary in Southern Europe, so extraordinary that the New York Times reported it and people thought it was the end of the world. And, and then the Second World War began. And, and she told them the name of the Pope under whom that would happen, which would be Pius XI. And the Pope at the time was Benedict XV. And a future Pope could take any name he wanted, but she told them it would be Pius XI. So Fatima is obviously somebody who has come back from the dead and is telling them predictions that come true. I use Our Lady of Zaytun 
This is apparitions of Our Lady in the late 60s in, in, in Egypt. Mm -hmm. She appeared over a Coptic Orthodox church over a period of years, numerous times, sometimes seen, well, between all of them, over a hundred, hundreds of thousands of people. The Egyptian government investigated them and decided this was authentic. And, and there were Muslims who saw Our Lady, Muslims who were cured. So I use that as an example of the, the apparitions aren't only for Catholics, but for others too. So that's back from the dead. Then we say, well, look, there is life after death. But um, what can we know more certainly about it? And then we say, look, there's a religion. It's called Christianity, which has a developed teaching, which explains each one of these stages of what happens in the near-death experiences, that there is a soul and it leaves the body. There is a judgment, because that's one of the, the aspects that people go through many what they call the life review, and I've entitled the chapter, The Life Review. There is a hell because people have seen it, and I personally know someone who had a near-death experience of hell, and it totally changed his life. And a few see purgatory, Gloria Polo, the Colombian orthodontist who came to Sydney, saw her parents in purgatory, her father farther down, her mother farther up, and then she saw heaven as well. She was struck by lightning, by the way, and standing next to her, or walking next to her nephew across the campus of the University of Bogota in Colombia during a storm. And he was killed and she was very badly burned inside and out. So God allowed her to live in order to go around the world telling her story. So there is purgatory and there's heaven, the Vince majority go to heaven. And so there's a religion that explains all of this it's called Christianity. Christianity is a religion of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? Why should we believe him? So there's a chapter that justifies looking at the life and the, the teachings of Jesus to convince the reader that, look, you don't have to become a Christian, but he is worthy of listening to because he claimed to be God he showed by his miracles, including his resurrection, that he was God. Let's see what he has to say. And that's, of course, all of what Christianity teaches. But then we say, we know what we know about Jesus largely from the Bible. But is the Bible a credible book? So we look at why we should believe what we find in the Bible and the structure of the Bible, Old and New Testament, who wrote these books, why should we believe them? So it's a kind of apologetic for belief in Jesus and then for belief in the Bible. And then we say, within Christianity, there is one denomination, which is in fact the largest, so that more than half of all Christians are Catholics, which has existed from the beginning in a continuous succession of leaders called popes, which has this developed teaching from the beginning on life after death, the Catholic Church. And so we look at, in the next chapters, what the Catholic Church has to say. And we use not only the catechism, which is perhaps the primary source, the Bible, and then fathers of the church, theologians down the ages, to show that the Catholic Church's teaching on life after death, which coincides and explain, coincides with and explains all the life, the near-death experience experiences. So by the time we get that far, we're just about at the end of the book. Hopefully the reader, if that person has continued reading up to this point, is now at least half convinced that there must be life after death and is thinking now about their own possible death. And then the final chapter is, what must I do? So I keep saying throughout the book, you do not have to be a Christian. You do not have to be a Catholic. You can be any religion you want. What must I do? And the bottom line, the bottom line, as we see in the Catechism, in paragraph 1033 on hell, what must anyone do to avoid hell? Be sorry for their sins. What the, what the Catechism says there, I have to say, I've quoted this so often that I, I think I can say it um, without hesitation word for word. 
to die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from him forever by our own free choice. So to die in mortal sin without repenting means remaining separated from him forever and by our own free choice. And it's very interesting. In the near-death experiences of hell, invariably, the person, when coming back, explained that they realized they were there by their own choices. They weren't forced to be there. Their life and their, their sins are what led them there. So this is what the church teaches, and that is what the near-death experiences explained too. So what must I do? Be sorry for our sins. If you have belonged to some church, some, some synagogue, whatever it might be, go back. They'll welcome you. If you believe in prayer, if you believe in God, pray. Talk with his God. He loves you. So it's all very optimistic, very positive. And, and then finally, um, the, the last couple of lines read something like, um, and if you, if you do all of this, you can be one day in heaven, and I hope to see you there. And then, the, the, but the last line is, and oh, if you believe in prayer, pray for me so that I get there too. <laughs> so that's the end of the book. Now, let me say too about the dedication. For the last five years, long before I started writing this book, I have been assisting Ellie Egan, a girl well-known to some of your listeners, undoubtedly, who at the age of 15, as a year nine student at Tangara School for Girls, where I am chaplain, was diagnosed with an incurable brain tumor in the brain stem. And she knew that in principle, you do not recover from that. She was frightened, she was scared, she was angry, she didn't know what to make of it. Her mother convinced her that she should accept the will of God. Over the next year or so, she got progressively paralyzed. Her speech was impaired, her, her mind wasn't working properly, and her right side was paralyzed, she couldn't walk. But then after about a year or so, the tumor began to shrink. And Ellie began to recover some movement. Her speech came back. She was able to walk a little bit. And she ended up en enrolling in TAFE and uh, uh, technical education, going there in her motorized wheelchair. But then about a year ago, a little bit more, the tumor started to grow again. And all of last year, 2021, Ellie declined. And it was clear now the miracle that we had prayed for was not going to happen for her cure. And, and finally she passed away on the 10th of January this year. I'd seen her just two days before. She had a beautiful death. She was looking forward to it. And I dedicated the book to her. And what it reads is something like this for Ellie, who at the age of 15 was diagnosed with, with a brain tumor, a brain cancer, who believed in life after death and who looked forward to it with longing and who died on the day I finished writing this book, which is the case. I was going through the final edit of the chapters and that day, that Monday, I was going to finish the final edit. We got news that Ellie had died. I went to visit the family afterwards and didn't in fact finish writing that editing that chapter that day. I did it the following day. But the book is dedicated to her because her life was a great uh, demonstration of, of belief in life after death, of looking forward to dying. And, and so I dedicated the book to Ellie. And I, and I say, may she rest in peace and may we pray for Ellie. We don't think she needed it because she lasted so long with so much progressive paralysis that she, she couldn't communicate in any way. She couldn't move any limbs. She couldn't move her head. She couldn't communicate. If she needed something, she couldn't express it. And at the very end, her only form of communication was her eyes. And this is a great testimony to Ellie's desire to die because on the morning she died, early in the morning, she died about 11.30 in the morning, but maybe one or two in the morning, her mother was with her and a cousin. And her mother was saying, Ellie, our lady's coming to get you. 
and take you to heaven. And she added, I bet you can't wait. And Ellie's eyes went up and down with an emphatic, yes, I can't wait. So Ellie passed away in great peace and great longing. And we were all convinced that having lived so long with so much suffering and incapacity to, to communicate, that she must have gone straight to heaven from there. We prayed for her in the mass, of course. But um, so there's a case of life after death, a case of death rather, of someone who really believed in it. And I thought dedicating the book to her was only was only just and right. Sometimes we mm. all keep her definitely in our prayers. But Father, what's, what's absolutely remarkable is the way that you've approached this as if, let's say, as a lay person, <laughs> uh, yeah. with, with sort of a lay mentality, which, which goes in the spirit of uh, the work. You, you it, it's as if uh, it, it doesn't seem as if a priest had written it and, and you approached it from an angle that anyone could read it but and you don't force the faith on people but you 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 point to it and you meet your evangelical obligation to point and preach christ but you preached it uh, so naturally by building it up from reason from logic from science and then pointing to maybe look at jesus christ maybe look at his church at the end and and i think this is a broad spectrum that i think will assist so many people at least to get people started thinking about you know is there a metaphysical world that when we die does it exist is there a god and then i think you'll eventually lead people to the right path to the catholic church outside which uh, you, you know no one can be saved it's the it's the source of salvation uh, from which salvation flows. But I, I really think I'm very optimistic about this book. And let's- George, just on that, two, two comments. Um, first, from the beginning, I and the fellow who suggested the book had the idea, we cannot have this book written by a priest in the sense that it's written by a priest, but he should not appear as a priest. So. Nowhere in this book is it said that I'm a priest. Now, if anybody looks up my name, That's they're going to find it straight away. But <laughs> John Flader. It, it's just John Flader. And, and on the back cover at the bottom is a brief paragraph about who I am. And it just says, John Flader is a, has a BA in chemistry um, <laughs> from Harvard, is, has a doctorate in canon law, and people won't know what canon law is. Um, from the University of Navarre. Since 1968, he's been working in Australia with students at the University of New South Wales, University of Tasmania, RMIT University, and, and since 2002 in Sydney with, um, with students in a number of schools. So there's no suggestion that I'm a priest. We didn't want to scare off any atheist, any, yeah. any potential reader of any religion. So it's not written by a priest. And, and then what you said at the end, I have, I, I've come to the firm conclusion, well, the firm hope that it can lead people into the church. It can lead people back to the church if they're distant from it. And it can lead people to a more firm adherence to their own religion, whatever that might be, which will be what God will look at when he, when he saves them, that they have done more. As, as a good Jew, as a good Muslim, and as the, as the Vatican Council says, Lumen Gentium chapter or paragraph 16, whatever of good and truth is found in other religions, the Catholic Church considers as a preparation for the gospel. So if anybody comes closer to God through their own religion, they're closer to God, to the one God, they're closer to the gospel. And I, I think that it'll lead, lead some people back to their own faith and it will lead a number of people, I hope, into the church. I think it, it, there's a sub, um, uh, what we call it, um, not title, but um, of this book, which is, it's, it's a book of apologetics about becoming a Catholic. It doesn't pretend to be that, but that's what it in fact is doing. It's convincing you that there's death, convincing you that we've got a soul, convincing you there's a God, convincing you that there is, that Jesus Christ is God, that the Bible is worth believing and, and reading, 
that the Catholic Church is the one church that Jesus founded and has the fullness of all of his teachings. And I show some of the things that the church has that I just mentioned that some of the other Christian denominations don't have, most of them don't. And, and so we, we just pray that it will lead people into the church or back to the church and or into heaven. The main thing, get them to heaven. That, that's what the and ultimate Father, goal is. Get them we have heaven. a question here from Deborah, who's emailed us. And Deborah asks, why do you think people procrastinate? Why is it that man's nature is to leave everything uh, to the last minute? Why do we <laughs> need to go through a near-death experience before we realize that physical death is not final? I really wish your book will open many eyes before it's too late. Thank you, Deborah, for your question. Deborah, that is a superb question. And who can answer that? And interesting, the, the etymology of procrastination, procrast in Latin for tomorrow. tomorrow. So, manana. <laughs> so, <laughs> why do we all procrastinate? It's built in, I think, original sin is the answer to the question. It's just in our nature to avoid suffering, to avoid um duty to avoid anything that's going to present any hardship we we've we've got some of that in life and we don't want any more so we we put it off but inevitably we've got to do this thing that we're putting off so i think the answer to why we procrastinate is 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 original sin and our our lack of uh, willingness to undertake pick up the cross and carry it and uh that that i i fully agree with you deborah that that we pray that this book will lead people to God. And as I said at the end, I hadn't thought of it that way before, but the whole point is get people to heaven, get people to believe. And as regards the, the question, procrastinating about life after death, that, that's the ultimate question. Nobody wants to confront that now while they're healthy and young. Oh, I'll face that when I get there. But let's read this book now while we're healthy and we can maybe change our life radically now and spend our life, living it closer to God. And like, I'll tell you a story. When I was going to Melbourne from another city, probably Sydney at the time, or could have been Hobart, we had evenings of recollection for men. And there was a woman that would come when the recollection was on to play the organ for benediction. And after benediction one day, she explained that her father had become a convert late in life. And when he was dying, they asked him, dad, do you have any regrets? And he said, yes, I do. And she thought, goodness, what have we not done for dad? He said, my only regret is that I didn't become a Catholic earlier. And this is the regret. We didn't live in this fullness of truth and faith earlier. So hopefully this book will help some younger people to, to get their own life in order earlier and live the joy of living closer to God, living a decent life, could be as a Muslim, could be as a, as a whatever, but the, the joy of that and Pascal's wager deals with even uh, apart from enjoying heaven forever, if we bet that there is life after death, we're gonna enjoy life here on earth. We'll have more friends, we'll be more honest, we'll be more cheerful and hardworking, we'll have a better attitude to life. Actually, one of the interesting things too, there's a number of testimonies about this book, two of which are on the back cover. And then there's, a, I haven't seen the book, so it's probably two pages of testimonies from different countries and from different professions, all secular. And one of them is from a palliative care specialist who's a good friend. And he said, we palliative care specialists know that often treating psychological, or spiritual pain can be more difficult than treating physical pain. After all, think of physical pain, it's the morphine, and, and that calms the pain considerably. But suppose you are calm with the morphine from your physical pain, but you're still wondering, because you don't believe in God, you don't believe in life after death, you're wondering, what's gonna happen? You're anxious, you're, you're worried, and that's treating, psychological and spiritual pain, which obviously a palliative care specialist can do. But he says, I hope that this book will help many people to deal with that pain and to see the meaning of their suffering and, and of their death. I can't remember exactly exact words, but um, the, we, we really hope that this book will help many and that they deal with the, the, the issue, not at the end of their life when it's 
at the last moment, as some do, and they're saved. We've seen that in near-death experiences, but rather earlier on. And Father, you've approached this from a very secular perspective. Will this be available in many bookstores outside church circle, church-related um, uh, places? No, that's, that's, that is the question that I had in mind when I began the search for a publisher. I wanted, ideally, a big international secular publisher because we want this book in the secular bookshops it will make its way into the catholic bookshops too but i tried various ones through various avenues including george weidel for example the author of the two volumes of the biography of john paul ii george writes regularly in the catholic weekly he's a real intellect from the united states so the editor of the catholic weekly sent him the text of the book and asked him, do you think your publisher would consider this book? His answer was that he thought that his publisher, which might have been Doubleday, I'm not sure, was generally dealing with high-end literary works like that of George Weigel. And he's, he described my book as an, it written and in, in an informal, engaging style, but it really wasn't for his publisher and then he referred us to image but image didn't follow it up in the end and i i looked at various publishers and decided it's going to take too long it's too difficult you need a literary agent to present it to the publisher in most big cases anyway of publishers so i went back to connor court who have published all my other books which were catholic books and realizing that connor court is now more far more secular than Catholic. And they publish in the US and the UK. And actually for one of the people that wanted 10 copies of the book, it's a man who's here temporarily from England. He'll be going back in early March. And he said, I wanna take 10 copies back because they're more expensive in England. And I told the publisher this, and he said, tell him to get them in England from Blackwell's, which is one of the great publisher, well, bookstores, in, in, in London or from, from um, the Book Depository, which is one of the great distributors worldwide. So um, Connor Court deals with Amazon. It deals with the Book Depository as big distributors. It deals with the secular bookshops too, because that's where these the book, most of the books that they sell are going to be sold in secular bookshops. So the hope is yet, yes, it will be in them as well as in the Catholic bookshops. Excellent. And that, that's what we really want. It has that, uh, that ecumenical dimension to it, that it's not, it's not just a Christian book. It, it does have your secular name as a lay person in, very much in the spirit of the work and, uh, and, and no mention of any sort of church-related uh, activities. You know, it's just simply John Flader, the individual. And uh, I, I think this would be a tremendous success, Father. And I'm definitely pro. We've been praying for it for a while I've been thinking about it for a while. I've been definitely, I know this will definitely take off and uh, many people are excited. So thank you very much for being with me here tonight on the Catholic Toolbox. Um, I'm sure this, the book in and of itself will be your practical tools to take action, to help others. And uh, if we can ask for your blessing, Father, before we conclude. Indeed. And just to remind the, the viewers that the book is entitled Dying to Live, Reflections on Life After Death. And if they want to go to Connor Court or just put the title and my name into Google, you find it straight away. But if you go to Connor Court uh, Publishing, they have at the top of their, their homepage two books. The first one is a book on euthanasia and the second book, scrolling down, at least on my phone, is, is mine. And then it, it has the cover and it has the back cover with the explanation of two of the testimonies about the book, an explanation of the book itself, and then a, a little explanation of who I am. And they can actually order it online straight away. You can order copies from Connor Court and they'll be sent out as soon as the book is published or get it from any bookshop, go into a secular bookshop and ask if they have it. And if they don't, they'll get a few copies in for you and us and others. And I'd be very happy to give a blessing to all of you people and ask your prayers not that we are convinced this book will sell. We, we hope it will. We think it will. But we want prayers that, will, that it will touch many souls. And only God's grace can do that.
can turn an atheist into a believer as we see some of the near-death experiences doing that. But it's God's grace that does that and God's grace responds to our prayers. Ask and you shall receive. And I'll give you all a blessing. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain forever. God bless you all and we hope to see you again. Thank you very much, Father. And thank you very much for tuning into the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Vanessa. Until next week, God bless. Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith, to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.